You are listening to a conservative review production. Trust, but verify. You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. Welcome to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. It's Thursday afternoon, June the 23rd, and my gosh, guys, I don't know what to tell you. I have never dealt with a day, probably all year, that had so much going on. Um, obviously, all the national security stuff, the Democrats making fools out of themselves on the House floor, promoting gun control at a time that they're bringing in Islamic refugees, and we have the Muslim Brotherhood control. There's so many issues. I know we spoke about it in the last podcast. I want to get to this in, in future episodes, hopefully next week. But for now, I want to focus on the judiciary, the Supreme Court. The big news from today is we had two big decisions, one on affirmative action, one on immigration. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it's kind of one and one. We lost the affirmative action one. We won the immigration one. So, and immigration was kind of a higher profile, bigger deal, bigger consequences. So it was a pretty good day. You know, we win some, we lose some of the courts. I'm here to tell you that today does not undermine my thesis in my book, Stolen Sovereignty. It actually validates it. The courts remain the biggest threat to democracy. You know, we're ruled by one man, and it's not Barack Obama. It's an unelected. Hey, at least Obama was elected and reelected. I mean, you can't take that away from him. We are ruled by Justice Anthony Kennedy. Whatever side of the bed he wakes up on that day determines the outcome of a major social or political issue of our time and is binding throughout the country. Now, that's actually not true, and that's what I want to discuss. It's not how the courts work. That's not how they're supposed to work, but that's how society views it now, erroneously, and that's why we need to reclaim the power from the courts, go order stolen sovereignty, um, how to stop unelected judges from transforming America at Amazon.com. You could do that now. You'll get your book July 19th when it comes out, God willing. Before we delve into these two cases individually, I really want to just give a brief overview of what is the role of the courts. You know, obviously the courts were meant to adjudicate criminal and civil cases between individuals or, you know, uh, issue convictions for, for crimes. In other words, they apply the laws written by either Congress on a federal level, state legislatures on a state level, um, and they apply them. You know, the, the framers wanted separation of powers. They didn't want those writing the laws to actually apply the application so they would be applied fairly and judiciously. But what about as it relates to lawsuits against the laws themselves? What we commonly call judicial review to overturn, to adjudicate cases, to possibly overturn uh, a state law, uh, federal law, or an action taken by an executive a governor, a president, does the court have the power to do that? What's the, what's the role of the court as it relates to that? So obviously, judicial review itself was a subject of big controversy. 
Um, even at the time of the founding, Justice John Marshall and Marbury versus Madison you know, popularized judicial review, and he said it is within the purview of the court to say what, what the law is. Now, what is the law? The law is not the judiciary. The law is not the legislature. The law is not the executive branch. The law is the Constitution. That is the supreme law of the land, um, at, at least as it relates to what is spoken about. Again, not everything is in the Constitution, um, and you know that's left to the states and the people. But as it relates to constitutional issues, the Constitution has the final say. Now, you're going to ask, well, who determines if indeed that law is constitutional? Who is the final arbiter of that? Now, let me first answer who is not the final arbiter. It's certainly not the courts. It's not the judiciary because they are unelected precisely because they are to have neither force nor will in political issues. They are supposed to be, in the words of Hamilton and Madison, the weakest branch of government. Obviously, the legislature was supposed to be the strongest branch of government. So the answer to that question is ultimately the people. Ultimately, the people have to decide that. Now, what does that mean, the people? Well, I mean, it means, for the most part, the legislature would predominate. Um, but the people, through public opinion, through protests, through new elections, they would kind of show what happened. So, you know, let, let's say, for example, you had a president that went and said, you know what, I'm going to go and I don't like the tax system. Nobody does. You know, everyone from all political persuasions complains about it. Uh, so I'm going to direct the Treasury at my order to go and restructure the tax system, you know, collect different income brackets, different types, different sources of taxation. Now, you'd say that is flagrantly unconstitutional. Now, why is it unconstitutional? You don't need a court to tell you it's unconstitutional. And it shouldn't be the act of a court to strike it down. I mean, it it is um, – and I'm sorry, I got a bad cold here. My uh, 20-month-old just – forever give me a cold so i apologize ahead of time if i'm on uh, if i if i'm unclear Ugh, so hard to get that out my nose is stuffed today but anyway the notion that a president could be a king is countermanded by the constitution so the point is the founders envisioned that the people would they would rise up against it and congress would stop it the people would protest and yes as part of that one of the one of the factors is the the court not the final factor because then we live in a judicial oligarchy by an unelected branch of government which is even worse than legislative tyranny as i established in my book but they were supposed to be one factor that you know let's say uh, you know i don't know people think something's unconstitutional whatever it is and, and that's important to know because we live in a republic in, in a pure democracy well whatever is done is well th- that's what the elected officials that's what they deem proper, so they have the power to do it. No. We say, in our society, we, we have the moral authority to say this is unconstitutional. Now, who actually changes that? Again, Congress would fight back against the president. The president would fight back against Congress. The, the Supreme Court and, and the lower courts, viewed as scholars who have watched precedent and application of the laws and have studied our history and traditions and constitution, you know, they have a certain degree of respect among society that, that you, know, oh, you know, they've also said that that's unconstitutional. That's yet another factor. But the notion that whatever they say is the final say, they are the final arbiter of what is constitutional and what is not. 
even over the wishes of the president and Congress and the people, even when it countermands the plain meaning of the Constitution itself, that certainly was not their power. All Justice Marshall said was that in a case in order to give relief to an individual plaintiff, individual parties in a lawsuit, sometimes you might have to look at the law itself. And if the law is unconstitutional, well, then I have to give relief to this plaintiff. But that it should be instantaneously and universally binding across the country as the law of the land, that was never, even, even... with the judicial strongmen in, in the early times of our founding, like Justice Marshall, they never envisioned that. And actually, he used the term in, in uh, Marbury versus Madison sometime, in some cases. Not in every case, but in some case when it you, know, you have to look at the constitutionality of a law passed by um, Congress and even less often by a state legislature. They really didn't envision them overturning those laws too often, state laws. You would have to look at what the law does say. And, you know, if the people think that's bogus, if Congress thinks it's bogus, they'll say, screw off. I, I won't. I'm not listening to it. Um, and, and, you know, let the people decide. If the people decide that that is a very um, sound, scholarly, accurately constitutional judgment, they would punish those legislatures and or the president or a governor or a state legislature that defied the court's ruling. But they didn't give the court the ability to enforce it. The only thing that's be enforcing it now is um, really public sentiment, public perspective, perception of what the court's role is. So anyway, what we have now is basically on the Supreme Court, you have three conservatives, three reliable conservatives. You have Justice Roberts, who's often with them. You got four. You have four that will always rule with the liberal political view irrespective of the legality, the jurisprudence behind it. And you have Justice Kennedy, who often is with the crazies, but once in a while he'll still be with us. So basically everything boils down to what Anthony Kennedy says. That was never meant to be the case. Now, to set the stage for for explaining the two cases, the affirmative action case, Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin, um, and Texas v. U.S., the immigration case, Obama's DAPA amnesty, I just first want to note that once we irresponsibly and er erroneously made the courts the final arbiter, so you have to use the Constitution as it was originally written, that's number one, as your as your guidepost to what is constitutional, what is not, in terms of state or federal laws that you want to strike down or uphold. And you have to be consistent, and you have to apply it fairly to everyone, irrespective of who you are. That is the rule of law. That has been turned on its head. I want to first discuss the Fisher case. This is a travesty. So real briefly, just the circumstances of the case You have University of Texas at Austin, as is the case in many colleges, they have affirmative action where they basically openly proclaim that they are skewing their admission standards in order to bring in more blacks or whatever else they call a minority chosen protected class. In this case, they had the 10% rule. Instead of saying, you know, however many slots we have, the top performers in each high school, the top grades are are offered, you know, first right to uh, accept an admission. Uh, they said the top 10% of perform- performers in each high school. Well, that's ridiculous because there are some very low-performing high schools. I mean, it, it should be the top t- 10% overall. But they justified it. They openly said because they wanted to bring in many more minorities. So let's say, um, you know, let's say you have 
and this case was Abigail Fisher. She was the plaintiff. She was scored in the top 12% of her class, very close to the cutoff. So she missed it. But they brought in all these people that would have scored in the bottom 50% in that school and the bottom 50% overall for admissions, but they, those slots were given to them for affirmative action purposes to supplant her simply because she is white and those other people were not. That at its core is plain, unadulterated discrimination. Okay? I mean, you could validate your social engineering all you want and all your good intentions, but that is full-blown discrimination. If that were done to um, you know black individuals to benefit whites, I mean, that would have been thrown out in two seconds. That is purely discriminatory. And that is a state law, because keep in mind, this is a it was state law. This is University of Texas governed by state law. It's a public institution. We're not even talking about a private institution here. Yet in a 4-3 decision written by Anthony Kennedy... They, they, they ruled that this is not covered by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. This is fine. That, that in all, as long as they're um, pursuing diversity, that is a good enough governmental interest to create the law, even though it's invidious and discriminatory against you know, predominantly whites or Asians in this, in this circumstance. Now... What's more offensive about this case is when it's juxtaposed to everything else the left believes. And, and this is what I mean about being judicious and applying everything equally. To begin with, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution is not what people think it means. It means what Thomas Jefferson meant in the Declaration of Independence, the preamble. And I'm going to write about this in my uh, upcoming manifesto on July 4th, God willing, we'll, we'll put it up on the website that, that Monday, um, celebrating the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. In, in, in 1868, when they passed the 14th Amendment, they were echoing the preamble. Our, found, uh, our drafters of the 14th Amendment during the Reconstruction Congress, they said blatantly, uh, House Ju- Judiciary Committee Chairman James F. Wilson, that this um, 14th Amendment, this law, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was the forerunner to the 14th Amendment, did not create a new principle, a new ideal, a new right. It just merely enshrined the values of the Declaration that were always there. It meant everyone had equal access to the courts and everyone had equality in terms of inviolable, inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property. Certainly, certainly, it didn't guarantee equal outcomes, but in even the equal opportunities, it didn't guarantee that. It didn't preclude a state from being discriminatory, um, it, it, you know, in terms of certain privileges and recognitions and statuses, you know, as long as it didn't pertain to the fundamental rights. So I, I don't believe, I believe, as, in, as crazy as this law is, I think a state does have the right to do it. If you want to go back to the bare bones 14th Amendment. But nonetheless, for the past 100 years, 100 years of case law, we've moved away from that. We've clearly defined that the equal protection now includes everything. And it certainly includes any legitimate discrimination. Okay, fine. But we have Anthony Kennedy that just issued an opinion last, last term on um, gay marriage saying that a state cannot pass a law defining marriage as a marriage, as it has always been since the dawn of times, because that's discriminatory. 
they have ruled that you can't treat a man like a man if he believes he's a woman because it's discriminatory, right? Transgenderism is now a natural right. Um, they're now saying uh, women have a equal right to be drafted, to, to be put in infantry. Again, violating natural law, which, by the way, is the source of the equality that the Declaration talks about. E- equality comes, it is a self-evident natural right from nature's God that all men are created equal. Certainly doesn't mean men and women are of equal strength um, across the board or, of, you know, should should pee in the same bathrooms. That's not what it means. It means in terms of fundamental rights, um, inviolable rights. But nonetheless, Anthony Kennedy said, oh, no, that's what equality is. So the Equal Protection Clause is used as the porta potty for jurisprudence to throw in any social engineering policy that our founders could have never envisioned. But yet, when it comes to real discrimination, a law that straight up discriminates based on race, that's fine. This is the state of our courts. It's outcomes jurisprudence. The consistency is not in terms of the application of the law, but who it pertains to. If it's a protected class, if it's a homosexual, if it's um, black, Hispanic, a Muslim, they'll rule one way. If it's someone who happens to be white, they'll rule another way. This is disgusting. This is not what the courts – I mean even if you believe the courts were meant to be the final arbiter and strike down laws and you strike down marriage laws, you strike down bathroom laws, you strike down basic societal things that states have always governed forever – so, by golly, you have a mandate to strike down a state law that has race-based discrimination in college admissions. But, alas, this is where we are with Anthony Kennedy, these guys. I mean, could you imagine if you had um, standards for collegiate sports, basketball teams, let's say, and you said, you know what, there aren't enough whites in basketball, and you have to take the top 10% in all schools, even the predominantly white ones, even if they're 10 times worse than the black players in the black schools. Do you think for a minute, Justices Kennedy, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg would would have stri- would strike that down? Of course not. Outcomes-based jurisprudence. This court decision is going to embolden and give license to all of the states, all, you know, you know, private institutions, anyone to discriminate based on race as long as it's against whites. This is going to be very consequential. And I I would add that, you know, it's interesting that they say private individuals are violating the 14th Amendment if they don't service people with their own you know, business, if they disagree with their what they're doing, you know, to bake a cake for a gay wedding. When, of course, that's not true. You don't have a right to someone else's private property. Yet a public state-run school, state taxpayer money, could openly discriminate based on race. This is outcomes-based jurisprudence for you. Let's move on. We're running out of time to the second decision, the immigration case. Well, isn't this great? They, they struck down Obama's amnesty. First of all, the fact that we're celebrating – again, back to my analogy from the beginning of a president would unilaterally remake tax policy. You don't need the courts to tell you that. Congress should strike it down. This is very – I am not happy the fact that Congress couldn't strike down the most manifestly illegal act ever by a president. 
Because keep in mind, tax policy is among Americans. To create citizenship for illegal aliens, people that don't have the right to be here, that is something we've spoken about many times. Even King George couldn't do without Parliament. Um, no, you know, a, a president can't violate the sovereignty of his nation. I can't think of something more manifestly unconstitutional. Congress has plenary, absolute power over immigration pursuant to Article 1, Section 8. Um, and it has been that way since our founding. The president has never had any power over that. He cannot uh, repeal laws by Congress and grant affirmative benefits to people that are mandated to be deported by Congress. And yet four justices still felt that was constitutional. Again, I want to talk about this outcomes-based jurisprudence. You could be the most open borders person in the entire history of the world. You could want to bring in all sorts of people from the third world, endless immigration. But that's a political policy argument. As a matter of legality, if you're sitting on a court, you would have to rule this out of bounds. A president can't do that. You would have to run for office and con- or convince Congress to pass that. But yet four justices. So now just th- – this was split four to four. So we won on a tie because it, it, it cancels each other out and, and the lower court's decision gets upheld. We won this by the skin of our teeth. It's only because this happened to be a national case where you could shop it around to any judge. And thanks to Ken Paxton, great attorney general of Texas, he filed the lawsuit in the best district court, the best, then it went to the best appellate court, the Fifth Circuit, pretty much the only good circuit left. And we just got, you know, Judge Hannon was good at the district level. We had two to one. Even there, the Democrat appointee on the Fifth Circuit ruled it, ruled the wrong way, but two to one um, upholding the injunction against the DAPA Act. And then four to four in the Supreme Court. Just by the skin of our teeth, something so manifestly unconstitutional. We might celebrate this today, but as I warn in my book, Stolen Sovereignty, in the long run, the courts are going to be a liability for us, big time, on net, as it relates to immigration. I don't like the fact that we have crowned the courts the final say over our sovereignty. In this case, we, we, we just, anomalous circumstances, because it was so patently unconstitutional, because we got the best panel on the lower court, and Anthony Kennedy was still sane on this one issue when he woke up at this time of day, we won. Every other case, I can guarantee you we will lose. Because in the future, we want to have you know a conservative president, and that president's going to want to do the opposite. They're going to want to take executive action lawfully within the confines of law to deport people, to enforce the law. Every single one of them is encumbered in a lawsuit. And like I said, the, the, the circuit courts are worse than the Supreme Court. Every other circuit, you're seeing it right now, and you can see I have chapters four and five in my book. I go through this. They are mandating the release of criminal aliens, fundamental rights for illegal aliens. It has got, gotten really bad. A lot of people haven't noticed it because Obama's president has also been bad on the issue. But if we have a president who's good on the issue, you're going to start seeing this where the courts throw out executive action and throw out laws passed by Congress. 14th Amendment, equal protection for illegal aliens. This is who we are as a people. This is what they're going to say. They're already saying it. Most of the circuits will already say this if cases go in front of them. In the long run, this makes me very nervous that we're celebrating the court. The court should not decide this. Congress should have struck it down. There is something fundamentally wrong when a president could violate the sovereignty of the nation 
and yet somehow Congress is refusing to stand up to him. But a four to four decision in a Supreme Court upholding a Fifth Circuit split is able to make Obama listen. And, and look, Obama did listen. It's unbelievable. Anthony Kennedy. It's all Anthony Kennedy. Had Anthony Kennedy ruled the other way, this would have been viewed constitutional. This is absurd. The courts should never have this power. And even though we benefited very slightly now in the long run on net, we will benefit a lot more by returning the power from Congress to the from the courts to Congress, as I lay out in my upcoming book, Stolen Sovereignty. And I do want to add just politically, this is not such an amazing outcome for us. Um, you know, first of all, it, it, there's two amnesties, DACA and DAPA. This had nothing to do with DACA. Obama is still issuing social security cards, work permits for DACA individuals. They will become citizens one day. And even DAPA, it's just the affirmative benefits that got struck down. But the lack of deportations are still taking place. The courts can't force him to positively take an action and deport these guys. So, you know, the criminal alien crisis, the illegals flooding our country, the incentives thereof. Congress can leverage against Obama and say, if you don't deport these people, we'll cut off funding for DHS. They're not doing that. Um, They could uh, defund his entire amnesty program, which, you know, allows him to thwart federal law. They're not doing that. And as I'm going to note in some subsequent posts here at Conservative Review of my vertical conservative conscience, Congress needs to be emboldened by this instead of running away. Oh, you see, the courts took care of it. Wash our hands of it. You know, move on to the next issue, which I don't know what issue they fight for because they don't fight for any issue. But um, no, they need to say, wait a minute, this is unconstitutional. The court said so. We wouldn't know without the courts that the president can't become king over our sovereignty and change immigration law. We, we wouldn't know that, but the court said it. So therefore, DACA is just as unconstitutional. It just wasn't a party. It wasn't a subject to this lawsuit. Why aren't they defunding DACA? That's what we should demand now. They should defund DACA. And also, Obama is allowing illegals in our military. That was not struck down. That should be in the National Defense Authorization Act. It's going to conference committee between the Senate and House. They need that provision in there, as as I'm going to write. So this is a very limited scope. The benefits are very limited. Um, You know, like I said... Obama has succeeded in 90% of his immigration agenda. This is that 10%. And in the long run, the courts will always be against us. Um, they, they didn't like executive amnesty against the Congress, but they will create judicial amnesty. They already have created judicial amnesty in many, many respects. So watch out for that in the future. And again, four justices, and I, and I could tell you every other circuit court, or most of them, would have ruled that this was constitutional. This is where we are with the courts. They have become the final say, and they use their own political outcomes to determine what that final say is over political and social issues. This is very dangerous. This is very dangerous when we have state legislatures, we have governors, we have president, we have Congress, we have the people, but it's whatever... The courts say, and on the Supreme Court, it pretty much boils down to Anthony Kennedy. That determines our democratic values. It determines our constitutional, determines fundamental rights, every political and social question of our time. This is a this is the biggest threat to democracy. It cannot go on. Um, the courts need to be reformed. You know, 
there's a lot more to say on this. I can go on and on. Please pick up my book. Do yourself a favor. Arm yourself with knowledge about what the courts were supposed to be like, what we can do to rein in the power of the courts, why the courts are going to be a much bigger threat to democracy, to fundamental rights, to our sovereignty, particularly with regards to illegal immigration in the coming years. Um, With that said, we are at a time. um, I really look forward to getting back to some of the national security issues, guns, immigration, refugees, Islamic terror, the Muslim Brotherhood. What is going on is unbelievable that Congress will not vote on banning the Muslim Brotherhood. They will not vote on putting a pause on immigration from the Middle East. They are allowing the Democrats to define this narrative here, again, just like they allow the courts to run rogue shot over our democratic system. So again, it's it's kind of symmetrical. Republicans just lay down and let everyone else do their bidding In the case of the DAPA immigration case, it worked out for us. Every other case, it will not. It has not. Do not allow the courts to promote social transformation without representation. Let's take back that power. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 